0: Just this afternoon, I was talking to a friend saying that I was going to be doing this podcast and he was just like, you picked Bridget Jones's Diary? Why? I'm like, because it's great. That's
1: funny. <laughs> Welcome to the Crooked Table podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yannis Jr., Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we like to democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to talk about a movie that really resonated with them, either something they grew up with or something that, for whatever reason, they have a personal connection to. So this episode, I am joined by Karen Peterson. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Hello. Hello. So, of course, I, I know you best as a one quarter of the Citizen Dame podcast, but you tell people a little bit about who you are and uh, what you have going on?
0: Oh, wow. A little bit about who I am. So I got started in the film criticism world um, with Award Circuit, where we, we cover all kinds of entertainment stuff, but our primary focus is on awards for television and film. And that's actually how I met Kristen Lopez, who's one of my colleagues one of my co-hosts on the citizen dame podcast because we uh you know there's all these all these great film podcasts out there but so many of them are either all men or there's like a token woman and we were like screw that we want one that's all girls so we got a couple of, of other wonderful ladies to join us so i have so i still do award circuit but i also do citizen dame too so it's a lot of fun it's a lot of work but it's totally worth it
1: and you're also on another podcast too am i correct
0: I am. I also have another podcast, The Watch and Talk, where it's just a movie review and we, we do that every week.
1: And I think you and I just started corresponding just kind of casually on Twitter. I, I believe I reached out to you for, uh, for some quotes for a couple articles that I'd written in the past, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. But this is the first time that we've actually uh, spoken uh, over yeah. in any other capacity other than online. It's great to talk to you, Alas.
0: Yeah, you too. This is really fun. I'm looking forward to our conversation today.
1: Cool. Same here. And so this movie, uh, you know, I I, when I mentioned to you that I wanted you to be on the podcast, you you wanted a little time to think it over and then you pretty much landed on this. And I guess we'll get before we get into exactly why. Let's just hear a little bit of the trailer for the movie we're going to discuss in this episode Bridget Jones's Diary. In every life there comes a time to turn the page. I decided to get a grip on my life and start a diary. Resolution number one. will not be paranoid about weight. Will not form romantic attachments to any of the following Alcoholics, workaholics, sleeping toms, or perverts And will not fantasize about a particular person who embodies all these things My boss I was wondering if you might care for dinner Friday night That was a little bit of the trailer for Bridget, Bridget Jones' Diary So Karen, tell me a little bit about you know your, what this movie is to you What your history is with it And uh, why this is the one you ultimately ended up uh, wanting to talk about
0: so I don't remember actually the first time I watched Bridget Jones's Diary. I I don't even think I saw it in the theater. In fact, I'm not sure if I saw it before Renee Zellweger got nominated for Best Actress for it. But the first time I watched it, I just fell in love with it. It's this very funny romantic comedy, but there's just other there's other things about it that really make it stand out. And so when you asked me what movie I wanted to talk about. I mean, there are thousands of movies I've seen and hundreds of movies that I really, really enjoy a lot. And and so it was hard to, well, at first I thought, oh, this is gonna be really hard to narrow down. What do I wanna talk about? But somehow right around the time that we were talking about this, um, I found myself in multiple conversations with different people completely randomly where I found myself defending Renee Zellweger's Oscar nomination and defending the movie from people who think it's just this trite, light-hearted, fluffy thing. And so I was just like, nope, you know what? I know what I want to do. I'm going to defend Bridget Jones's diary. So that's how we ended up here today.
1: Yeah, I think I saw it not in theaters as well. I think I caught up with it probably on I, I, VHS or D V D, whichever one I was still on at that point. I guess I had moved on to D V D by two thousand and one or two. Um so yeah, and I remember I remembered it fondly. I, I didn't really rewatch it a lot, but I know that it it was the kind of movie that was on cable constantly, I believe. So over the years, I think it it really helped gain traction. And then, of course, the sequel came out in 2004, because this one was a huge box office hit. I mean, it had a $25 million budget. It made 71 in North America and 281 worldwide. So that's... Pretty good return on investment. And this is, you know, early 2000s, late 90s, which was really prime territory for romantic comedies, which nowadays you don't see, you hardly see any of them um, hit that kind of box office return. I mean, now it's all franchises. And so it's really, in a way, kind of a time capsule of a different era in, in cinema, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: It is. Well, and one of the other reasons I really wanted to talk about this or one of the things I was looking at with movies I wanted to bring up was the fact that it has a female director and the fact that it was so successful and yielded an Oscar nomination and a couple Golden Globe and BAFTA nominations too at the time and was directed by a woman that also makes it pretty significant.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think in in the fact that, uh, I think this was her first she's kind of a Sharon McGuire. this is the filmmaker's name we should mention. She had mm-hmm. done a lot of documentary work and things like that before this. And then after this film, she made a movie called Incendiary in 2008. And then nothing until the third Bridget Jones movie, Bridget Jones's Baby, which was in 2016. Um uh, so I don't know what's what's going on what happened there if if uh, it's what do you think happened why why uh why weren't we seeing more output from her in between those do you think it's just the industry and like the the nature of it I guess that we're learning more and more about all the time now
0: Yeah I actually read an interview with her um when Bridget Jones's baby was coming out or right after she had been announced as the director on it, something like that. And, yeah, it wasn't that she decided to pull away. It was just that she, even though she had done this really successful movie, she wasn't getting opportunities to direct. Like, you know, men with those kinds of numbers, they would have been having movies thrown at them left and right. Mm -hmm. But for her, it just wasn't that case. And in fact, the sequel, they had a different... actually still stayed with a female director which doesn't usually happen um for bridget jones the edge of reason but it wasn't her it was someone else and so um they actually because it had been so long um and she had been out of the game for a long time and hadn't been really welcomed back she actually took a little bit of convincing to agree to do bridget jones's baby but
1: The first movie and books obviously had a a big cultural impact when it came out. It basically made... Renee Zellweger kind of a, a marquee star like this was all of a sudden she was leading movies this was right before uh, Chicago and she'd been in things before like but it but never never in the spotlight in this way as you mentioned it got her her first Oscar nomination and the screenplay is co-written by Helen Fielding Richard Curtis of course who has done a lot of his own films and Andrew Davies who I discovered in my research is actually wrote the 1995 Pride and Prejudice that this is heavily riffing on and we'll get into (laughs) that in a minute
0: yeah and and by the way just as a fun little aside um on the dvd for edge of reason there's a really fun you can probably find this on youtube now too um there's a really funny video that they recorded it's renee zellweger as bridget jones interviewing colin firth as colin firth and she's talking to him and like the je- The joke is that he's supposed to be there for an interview for some other movie and she just keeps coming back to the 95 Pride and Prejudice and that's all she can talk about and it's hilarious
1: <laughs> that's awesome I'll have to check that out um, so I guess where should we start with this Let, to delve into the film itself? So when when Renee Zellweger was cast, this is already kind of an iconic literary character, and I think there was at least a mild controversy as far as casting an American as this British character and whether or not she was going to pull off the accent and all of that. And uh, were you were you aware of were you aware of that whole situation when it was developing?
0: Uh, Not while it was developing, but I definitely knew about it after the fact. And yeah, it was a big deal. People were talking about like, well, why are they getting an American to play this role? Which it's funny because they never ask why British people are playing American roles. But, uh, you know, but... But yeah, I remember that was a big deal and people talking about whether she managed the accent or not. And I think the general conclusion was that she did a pretty dang good job with it.
1: Yeah, this is one of those examples of an American pulling off a British accent and getting a general approval. A lot of times it's, it's, I feel like this is really more of the exception than the rule when it comes to that though. And the fact that yeah. she, she was able, I think she I think I read that she gained what, 20 pounds for this role because I uh, think it was 40. Uh, was it even more? OK, see. Uh huh. And then because uh, obviously that's part of Bridget's journey. She starts off the whole uh, the whole film with this list of goals. And I guess we can kind of jump into it from here. We'll pick up Colin Firth and you, Grant, as we go along. So she starts off and she's she first of all, she has very. I think very kind of negative self talk in the beginning. She's like, "Oh, it's my thirty second year of being single." Um, so, so t- talk go into a little bit about like the opening of this movie. Like, did it did it capture you right off the bat? And what what about the the style that uh, Sharon McGuire uses here really uh, brings this character to life for you?
0: So it's funny because when I first saw this movie, I was in my early twenties, and I'm older than Bridget now. But um, it's funny because when i saw it originally this introduction oh i'm 32 i'm single i've you know i'm not really going anywhere i work this thankless job all these things it was like i was seeing what I worried about my life being in ten years or so, and now I look back and I'm like, oh, it's so cute that she was worried about that, you know. <laughs> so it's kind of funny how how that's changed. But I think it's a, I think the whole introduction is really a great. It's really well done. The way that that we meet Bridget, um, the way that we meet the people in her life. I think that it's it's really that. You have to remember that this is based on Helen Fielding's book, which is written like a diary. It's not written in, you know, complete prose and things. It's it's a lot of bullet points and, and things like that. And so there were a lot of fans of the book that were going into this having, you know, already loved the story. But how do you bridge that and I think that she I think that what they accomplish with the screenplay and what Sharon McGuire accomplishes is a really good way to show this is really about a woman who's keeping a diary for very specific reasons and I, I so I love that intro
1: yeah, I think she's trying to hold herself accountable and actually you, you know change change her behavior when it comes to dating and the way yeah, the way she, she takes care of herself and all of that stuff. And uh, just the beginning, you know we we see Gemma Jones as her mom and Jim Broadbent as her dad. So right off the bat, you have these like like ubiquitous character uh, British character actors showing up. Uh, and then we get the slow motion reveal of Colin Firth with the pan down to the the reindeer <laughs> jumper which I thought that was was great. Uh, Go ahead. It's only going to say something.
0: Yeah. Oh, no, it's just, it's so great because she has this moment. Her mother has been trying to set her up because this is what mothers do with their adult daughters who are single is like, Oh no, we have to get you someone. But of course her mom doesn't get it right. Because all she's worried about is her daughter finding love. Well, finding someone that loves her and there's very very specific distinction there, but she's not really worried about who that is as long as her daughter has someone. Right. And so when she's talking about this and and her mother has said like, Oh yeah, go meet Mark Darcy. He's great. And, um, and so then she has that moment where she sees him and she's like, Oh, he's actually really cute. Maybe mom actually did a good job this time. And then she sees that rain, that reindeer jumper. And she's like, uh, wait, <laughs> There's always a catch. There's always something wrong.
1: And this is it. well, at first, you know, he looks like Colin Firth. so <laughs> naturally, yes. she's and like, Colin hey.
0: Firth is a handsome man. <laughs>
1: Exactly, and and the casting of him is very purposeful, of course, because he played Darcy in Pride and Prejudice in 1995, and and it seems that he really wanted to, I guess, kind of poke fun at that that performance a little bit, and and uh, give it more of a a comedic take on uh, on the story, and kind of I guess play into the joke, and I think it it actually makes this film that much stronger for it.
0: Yeah, I don't think it. I mean. I think this is a a good enough story that it would have, but it really does add something to it that you've got Mr. Darcy who, I mean, the 95 pride and prejudice is kind of a gold standard of telling that story. And at least for me, that's my personal favorite. I don't much care for the Keira Knightley version, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's this really iconic role. It's one that Colin Firth, it took years for him to be able to get away from people just recognizing him for that and so i think this was kind of his opportunity to to have some fun with the thing that made him a star and and i think that he does such a good job of of playing mr darcy but also giving him a little bit of a different edge
1: Mm mm-hmm and the and the the difficulty i think in that character specifically is that you have to you have to be charming while still socially awkward and um Mysterious because obviously there's a big, the big twist that they, you know, that they get to at the very end of the movie regarding him, and you never really know where he's coming from, which, which I think makes the the love triangle, which it, it's not even really that for most of it, it's really just kind of her and her life. Um, mm-hmm. It makes it that much trickier to pull off on screen if that makes sense. It
0: does, yeah. And that's the thing that I love about the character of Mark Darcy, even more than Mr. Darcy, is that he does, he is socially awkward, but because of his fancy job and his, you know, he's got this kind of prim and proper lifestyle, it comes across as if he's a snob and he's looking down his nose at everybody. But when you consider what his job is, he's a human rights lawyer, his whole job is all dedicated to helping immigrants and and the disenfranchised and the underserved. That's not someone who's a snob, you know? And so he's he's constantly he's constantly under or eh. Just constantly misunderstood, I think people mm-hmm. think that he's one thing and they don't recognize who he really is because he's awkward and because he doesn't really know how to have a normal human conversation
1: right they they exactly they assume that he's that he is something, and then when they when they confront him, he doesn't do a whole lot to change their minds unfortunately <laughs> right and it, yeah. it and it takes him almost the entire running time of the film to really to really figure out what he wants to say and get the opportunity to say it. But again, we'll get to that in a little bit. So, uh, so okay, so they have their awkward meeting and then we have her singing Celine Dion's All By Myself and then and over the credits and <laughs> delving right into, okay, this is my resolution. This, you know, it's, it seems like it focuses pretty much on her weight and then her vices and her dating habits. Those are kind of the three main areas that she's really working on. <laughs>
0: Honestly, that's pretty typical yeah. for people,
1: you know, like what are the
0: things I need to fix about myself? Obviously, it's my outward appearance. But one of the things that I really like in that where where she's making her resolutions is of course she's doing these things because she wants to find love, but she's not researching what is it what do I need to do? What is it that men are looking for so I can become that? she's looking at what do I want to change about myself so that then I will be more attractive to the opposite sex, which is a very different thing. And I I think that that's easy to dismiss or overlook, but I, I, that's one of the many things I love about Bridget is that it's, it's really, she wants to improve herself so that she can attract the right person. She's not trying to become what the right person wants.
1: Right. And I think that's, probably a distinction that you only really get underlined, at least in the same way, with a female director. Um, mm-hmm. at, the, at the helm, had this been you know had this been a male directing it, it probably would have been more like it probably would have viewed closer to like something like Grease, where oh at the end of the movie, Olivia Newton-John just decides to be exactly what Danny wants, and then he can just take off his letter jacket and go back to living his life, I guess. Uh, and yep, it probably exactly. would have it probably would have ended up more in that direction. And yeah, I think it, it, you make a good point that she's really focusing on I need to feel better about me. How do I? You know how do I feel more comfortable in my own skin? And then, of course, Hugh Grant is is lingering around, making that a lot more complicated, as <laughs> Hugh Grant tends to do. So, uh, you know, you get Renee is caught in a, kind of a charm off for two hours between Hugh Grant and Colin Firth. Uh, what did you think of Hugh Grant in this movie? And I think at this point, this is ha- he hadn't really played. Uh, the kind of played his his sort of like foppishly charming uh, role, but in this s- kind of sleazy way. Very much, I feel like that was a departure for him at the time. Am I correct with that?
0: Yeah, I would say it was because before that, I mean, his big his big roles were like Four Weddings and a Funeral or Notting Hill or Nine Months. These movies right. where he's kind of the awkward guy at the center of his story, and now he's the he's the scoundrel on on the side like lurking on the edges wanting to cause problems and I think it's he does it so well that it's hard for me to believe that's not just really who he is
1: (laughs) (laughs) no this feels like a a, this performance feels like the prototype of of his his role in Paddington 2 in kind of a weird way (laughs) like that's who Daniel Cleaver ends up being he just gets takes the theatricality to a new level it's the logical progression. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Straight line from Bridget Jones' Diary to Paddington too.
0: <laughs> there you go. But yeah, what I what I think is is interesting about Daniel, just looking at the film and looking at his entire arc in it. Um, and of course, there's more that happens with him in The Edge of Reason, but particularly in in Diary, um, it's interesting because he starts off this relationship with Bridget based entirely on, on sex. He just is like, just interest intrigued by her because she's a little bit weird and totally different from what he normally goes for, but he's just in it for fun. He's not in it for an actual relationship, but when she starts to pull away, he, he feels something there and it doesn't like his relationship with her doesn't change him as a person, but the part of the reason that she's constantly drawn to him and and has these moments of weakness with him is because there is something there even if he's not willing to be a grown-up about it and and change himself to be worthy of her he's still he's still drawn to her because of who she is mm-hmm. and that's not something i think he would ever understand even though he says as much as at one point but i don't think he really even understands what that means
1: that's the other thing that really complicates I think this relationship is that it starts off you know flirtatiously over you know email which you know is weird enough as it is but it's also in the workplace and uh and everything like he's her boss so that acts as another le- level of complexity and it makes me it makes me feel it feels like that's a dynamic in this kind of movie that you don't you wouldn't really see as much now because there would be all these you know all these questions of harassment and things like that which some of his behavior in this movie gets pretty much pretty much crosses that line i'd say a few times early on
0: Oh, yeah, he's an HR nightmare. (laughs) I mean, there's just no gutting around that. But the thing is that if she had shut that down right Right. away, then he probably would have stopped. But because she opened that door just even a little bit, that gives him permission to to continue. But yeah, I mean, just just his initial email to her is like, whoa, that's pretty bold, dude. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and yeah, I mean, and then she's—I think she says at one point because I like the the uh, the joke, I guess, in in their initial emails is the formality of their language with like the yes. the bodiness of what they're talking about. So she's like, "Oh, seduced by the informality of this messaging medium and things like that." I'm like, "Oh man, this if this was now, this would totally be—they'd just be sliding into each other's DMs on Twitter <laughs> or something."
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: But um, yeah, it, it's that—it's that you know he. He's not used to. He's used to being the dumper. It seems like what it's very obviously the case there, and so um, it's it's you know it's that kind of thing that he's he's the kind of guy that he's in it for for fun, but then as soon as it turns real, he he shuts down. And then um, you know I think watching the movie as ob- uh, objectively not from Bridget's vantage point, 100%, we can kind of see that that's what's going on. And maybe she does on some level too, but she's choosing to ignore it. So it creates an interesting, I think, dynamic with the viewer who could, has a pretty clear idea of what this guy's about. Whenever she brings up, oh, do you love me? And things like that, he just kind of brushes it off or makes it a joke or, or whatever. So we can kind of see through that a little bit more than she can. And I, and I think it, it's, there's a level of dramatic irony involved in there as well.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing. And like the conversation she has with her dad, uh, when he finds out that she's got a boyfriend and it's, daniel and he's never met him hasn't even heard about him and he asks is he good for you does he treat you well and she says yeah she in fact she tells him she tells her father that daniel is perfect and the thing is that even in that moment she knows perfectly Mm -hmm. well he's not and this is this is something that that we do a lot way too much like we try to convince ourselves that the guy we're with that we know is all wrong for us Is is he's okay and he's he's good and we we want to convince we want other people to believe that and so I just I love that conversation that she has with her dad because of the fact that it's like we know he isn't and we know that she knows really deep down that he isn't either.
1: Well, there's also a um, there's also a uh, like an optimism and a persistence in her that I think. Makes her really endearing as well. Like she goes into it, and mm-hmm. you know, part of her knows that this is probably kind of a doomed romance. Things don't go her way. We have a montage of her being sad, eating like ice cream or whatever she has muesli, I think, at one point, because she doesn't have much in her fridge. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, she brushes right past that and ch- shakes herself off and gets back to it. And, I, and I, I think that's really refreshing to see on screen. So she keeps getting into these you know, making these bad decisions with men and, and then, you know, but she doesn't really, she never gets to the point where she, at least not in this movie where she wants to settle. She's, she'd rather, I think at some point rather be, I think she even says it at one point, a tragic spinster than, than be with someone who's, who's not really worthy of her. And I think that that's great thing to see in a movie like this.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the other things I love about Bridget is that she, even though she ends up with this guy that she knows is completely wrong, she still ultimately she she's someone who knows her worth. She knows that she has value, and she's not really willing to settle. She's not gonna stick with Daniel even after he mistreats her. She's not gonna stick with him just to have someone around. She's willing to walk away from that relationship when it's bad. There's something else that I really love that I, I wanna mention is is it's at the Tarts and Vickers party. And I, I don't know who I, I think it's her aunt um, is asking her about this this boyfriend that she's seeing and 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 Mark happens to be standing there and she asks Mark is this is this man good enough for our Bridget and he says absolutely not and she gets so offended by that she so she just bristles but it's like so because of her feelings toward Mark and because of this wrong information she's gotten about him she's not willing to listen, but there's so much care in that moment. Mark really, Mark really like, even if he doesn't even know what he's feeling for her right then, like he actually sees her too as someone with value. And I love that moment. She completely brushes it aside, but it's really significant.
1: Well, it builds to his big speech later on, which is like the most swoon worthy moment in the whole film where she goes, what
0: every person ever (laughs) wants to hear.
1: Yeah, Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Where she says, uh, you you know, is that the part where he's like, I I like you very much. I like you very much just as you are. And that's the that's the key phrase that I think, uh, you know, even even Bridget doesn't like herself just as she is. Even she's like, man, I, you know, I really got to work on myself. I got to lose weight. I got to stop smoking and drinking so much and like whatever and make work on my life choices. And he's like, no, I'll accept you exactly the way you are. And that that's a beautiful, a beautiful sentiment right there. And it
0: really is. And it's one of those, it's one of those moments where the wall comes down a little bit for Mark, because he seems like someone who would see himself as too good for someone like Bridget. And the fact that he's sitting there saying, I like you like this, this mess of a person who has this crazy mother and has like these vulgar friends and you smoke a lot. And stuff." he doesn't care about that, he doesn't see any of that. He sees her and it's, it's, Another moment where, like, it, at first when he says it, because he, you know, she has heard him, overheard him say some not very nice things about her. But in that time, he says, I like you as you, I like you very much. And she interrupts him. Oh, apart from this and that and that. And he's like, no, 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 no. And that's when he says the line, just as you are. And it really, that. Hearing that from him, from someone who she just assumes wouldn't even give her a second thought, that right there changes something in her brain. Because then it goes right into a conversation she's having with her friends where she has related the story to them and they're all just, like, speechless. They don't know what to say. And the, the one friend, Tom, he's like, but you hate this guy, right? And she's like, "Um, yeah, 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 I totally do. I hate him, like. She doesn't even know what to what to say to this because it's just such a such a change from what she thought she knew about him and also a little bit about how she sees
1: herself. It's a huge turning point in the film because that's really when it when it does become a love triangle up to that point. It's just her and her doomed relationship with Daniel, which we should mention. We don't want to I don't want to blow past the scene where she quits. Uh, where not only does she you know stand up for herself but she goes around and she gets a much better job working in television at this point she's just working in the publicity department for the his publishing house basically yeah and and uh stands up to her and um her like I guess adversarial co-worker Perpetua I think her name is Actually, yeah, slightly <laughs> senior
0: and therefore thinks she's like right.
1: yeah. Exactly. Uh, actually backs her up. She's like, No, I wanna make sure that I wanna make sure that she that she actually sticks with what she's about to do. And that's where, you know, she says, I'd rather be wiping Saddam Hussein's ass, which is kind of a dated reference now, but you know, two thousand one it, it works. Um so exactly. I, I I love that that moment is another like cheerworthy moment, I think.
0: Yeah, well that's another thing that I really like too is I know. I, I, I don't know if there's anything I don't like about this movie, honestly, um, other than mom's racism. But that's well, you know,
1: yeah, oh, the, the <laughs> but, Japanese, the Japanese, oh, cruel, yeah, race. yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I know, I caught <laughs> Such that.
0: Such a cruel people. His cruel wife, like, oh man. But um, but yeah, that's another thing about about Bridget that I really admire is she's have she's had this trouble with Daniel. She knows she needs to get away from him. She can't see him every day. Partly because he now supposedly is engaged to, to Lara from the New York office, but also just because she knows in herself, if she sticks around him, if he comes back ever, she's going to fall into that pattern again. She knows herself well enough to know that. So she goes out and gets another job. And then she comes back and she's like quitting because she's starting her new job on Monday. She didn't, she didn't leave and get herself out of that situation because there was someone else for her. She was willing. Someone who she wants to be in love. She wants to have a relationship, but she's totally willing. Like we already mentioned, to be alone. She just wants to do something for herself. She wants to improve her own circumstances, and I, I just I think that's such a great thing about her. And, and you know, another of the many things that I, I I love and I find her so relatable because she's all about constantly, and that's what we see throughout this movie. She's constantly about her own personal evolution.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and that's part of what I think makes Renee Zellweger's performance so compelling is that she is such a layered character and she gets to be vulnerable. She gets to be strong. She gets to be kind of bumbling. I mean, all, and, you know, when all is said and done, this is a comedy. So she gets the whole thing with the fire report, going, which makes her <laughs> basically, as she says, a laughingstock and uh, and of really the entire <laughs> nation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And real and really plays into uh, the you know I think leads directly to Darcy's sp- sp- whole speech to her. There's a certain element of destiny too with the two of them, where they literally keep running into each other everywhere. Uh, where she's supposed to cover this, she finally gets her first big story, and he shows up and oh, coincidentally is able to help her out. He's the she's he's the uh, the attorney that's representing the, the people she's supposed to interview, and things like that. So uh, there's a, there's a certain element of kind of. To reference in another early 2000s rom-com there's a little bit of serendipity at play as well with the two of them Hmm.
0: yeah which you know you always need those little coincidences in a good romantic comedy because life is full of them too you know i mean i've had situations where there's someone i'm interested in and i'll just like keep running into them places and i'm like why are why are you here again like how how do i keep running into you you know it happens in life
1: yeah. And but a lot of times you don't see it for what it is, like you said, like um, exactly. I think that's the case here until until that happens. So then we get uh, well, I, then we get the the whole thing where she's cooking for her friends and and he shows up and that's the whole the whole funny scene with the, the blue soup <laughs> <laughs> and all of that. And it's very marmalade and marmalade. <laughs> and <laughs> <the> yeah. Marmalade <laughs> and the, yeah, gosh, it's kind of a, uh, a an accepting Darcy into the group sort of moment. How did you feel about the the portrayal of her her friends which one one of which who I recognized right away as moaning myrtle Shirley Henderson from the Harry Potter yep. movies who who it's even referenced at one point and I don't obviously this was not intentional where she's calling Bridget she's upset about a relationship thing and she's trapped in the lady's toilet and I'm thinking oh my god just like moaning <laughs> myrtle it's trapped in the bathroom. It's like this. This, yeah. this actress can't get out of the bathroom. Uh, so what? Did Which you ha- is
0: so funny because she didn't even play that part until a year later. So <laughs> yeah, um, I really love her friends because they each have such distinct personalities, and we don't get a lot of time with them, but but they're not just like this this mass of three people that all kind of have the same personality. They each are very distinct. She has very different relationships with each of them and you get to know them a little bit too. And so it, that's why that scene where she goes and tells them what Mark has said about liking her, their reactions, like you as a viewer, you can kind of, be a little bit surprised by it too because you know before how, how they reacted to other things she said and and yeah i think they're really for the for the limited screen time supporting characters that they are i think they're really well fleshed out
1: i think the film find, finds a good balance of having it making it clear that she has a support system but also not letting that support system like compromise the fact that this is Bridget's singular story you know in a lot of rom-coms you end up having you know Meg Ryan and then like her best friend who's basically plays off of her in every single scene relaying what has just happened in the relationship with you know Tom Hanks or whoever it happens I guess I'm talking about You've Got Mail because I've seen that a million times too Um,
0: (laughs) well and a lot of times in in these movies where you do have strong um, supporting actors they end up sometimes overshadowing the leads like that happens big time. And exactly. I think in Notting Hill, like Hugh Grant's friend in that, his roommate, I I think he's way more memorable <laughs> than Hugh Grant is, you know, and Rosie O'Donnell and sleepless in Seattle. And, and sometimes that can happen and it definitely does not happen here. I think you're right. It's a, it's a very good balance.
1: And then, you know, the film does a really good job of uh, establishing not only her support group, but also the, the, the subplot with her parents and kind of a, a a mini portrait of you know um, a love at a much different stage, and how this, the difficulties that it, that it takes to keep uh, to keep your a couple together that far into the relationship, they actually get estranged, and the mom is, is dating this this television personality, and the dad is in kind of a downward spiral, trying to figure out. Trying to figure out what to what to do, and like uh, I think Bridget at one point gives him advice, like "Oh, show up at this party and start flirting with with people," which Jim Broadbent is not built to do, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, what did you? How did, uh you? Know, what are your thoughts on, on the subplot with her parents? And do you think it it uh, it underscores something specific in Bridget's journey, or is it just to kind of uh, add more layers to to her life? I guess.
0: I, I think it adds more layers to her life. I think it partly it accomplishes really developing the different relationships we she has with each of her parents because she's really close with her dad and not as much with her mom, which is is pointed out by her mom. like you two have your own little club of two, and I'm not on I'm not in the middle of that. But like then her mom, also is clearly this very lonely woman who starts to confide in her daughter because she doesn't have anyone else to starts telling her details. She does not want to hear, but I also just, I think it adds another interesting layer of, of storytelling too, because this really, and I know that this is something that men can em- enjoy this movie too. Clearly I'm talking to you about it. Um, but I think that this is something that just makes it even more a story for for, by, and about women um, because, you know, you see a lot of movies where men have midlife crises. It's very rare to see that where a woman is, is the one that's having that, that crisis of like, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't feel fulfilled by my relationship. And to see that play out is really, it's really interesting. It adds some funny moments as they're making all these comments about the color of Julian's skin Mm -hmm. (laughs) up close. He's almost purple, you know, (laughs) but it's, it's just, it's interesting to see that kind of dynamic because like I said, it's not something that you normally see explored. And, and it, it really does delve into the fact that you have to, even when you have the one, you still have to care for that relationship. And that's something that happened between the two parents is like, dad just kind of quit trying and didn't even realize that he he had settled into a pattern that mom wasn't super excited about like she wanted she wanted more from their relationship and he just didn't even notice and that's something that people have to be mindful of you have to relationships take work forever not just once not just finding the relationship but keeping it too
1: yeah yeah and i think the, the film does a good job of creating this kind of more realistic world where there isn't a happily ever after like you said I mean there's a line at one point in the film I think Bridget herself says whenever one part of your life starts going okay another starts fail, uh, falling spectacularly to pieces which is something yes, that, I've really, that line. I've really found to be true you know I'm in my mid-30s too similar to Bridget it sort of is almost and uh, you know you, you really get work you get your relationships set up and then oh work falls apart and you have to like figure out okay what am i going to do now where do i where do i go you'll find yourself constantly uh, perpetually at a different crossroads in a different part of your life romantically socially professionally whatever um and, and it's you know I, like you, as you mentioned this is a, the rare film that really shows a woman trying to have her which is, is appropriately enough considering Renée Zellweger have her little Jerry maguire moment where she's You know, that film is about a man who turns 35 and is like, okay, what am I going to I don't have to tell you. I know. I know you know all about (laughs) Jerry Maguire and Tom Cruise. I'm just saying (laughs) for the people listening and have don't remember Jerry Maguire that much. Um, But yeah, he's at 35 and trying to figure out where where he's going to do. Like, who is he? How does he see himself? And is that reflected in uh, in the way others see him? And I think um, Bridget is definitely. facing something very similar and we get a a well-rounded portrait of all the pressure she has from the different aspects of her life what she sees with her parents what she hears from her friends there's a scene where she ends up going to the, like uh, a party and there's like as she says lots of smug married couples and this one guy no, is like really smug
0: married couple
1: This <laughs> yeah. one guy wani <laughs> is like really relentless on her i'm like jesus what's up with wanting like back <laughs> off of her my like, god you know, she's facing kind of on all sides pressure to, to figure out who she is internally and externally. And I think the film does a good job of, um, you know, exp- exploring that and, and making it all feel more tangible than just, you know, your typical Hollywood rom-com would.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things, too, where I love that it's inspired by Pre- Pride and Prejudice, but it's definitely not the same story. It's not this old fashioned Regency era story. It's, it's something very modern. It's something that even, you know, almost 20 years later, which man, I can't believe it's been that long, but, um, even, you know, 20 years later, it still feels very, very realistic. It still feels very tangible because this is a modern woman in modern times and the experiences that she has, the people that she interacts with, those are all people that we know. We all have, have experiences similar or at least run into certain things that are, are very much the same and and I think that I think that a big part of that is because of the, the layers of the storytelling. I, I think it's just so well constructed and I think that I think so much of the credit for that obviously the screenplay, but so much of the credit for that really does go to Sharon McGuire because she's able to let this story play out in such a way that feels really natural
1: yeah no one looking for love is lives on an island so it's it's really exploring the 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 backdrop in which she has to kind of find herself Mm -hmm. so to get back to the plot part of it so then she's at the party with uh with mark darcy and and they're, they're hitting it off and everything's starting to go well and of course Daniel shows up, he's like, I'm going crazy without you, you're the only one who can, who, I think he even says, you're the only one who can save me, which is like, oh, dude, <laughs> not the right because not the right well, play here.
0: <laughs> no, definitely not. But the reason is, and this is what I was talking about before about him, she's the only one that's willing to call him on his bullshit. Right. He never gets that from anybody. And he knows deep down that he needs it, even if he doesn't know that that's what he needs. And he knows that she's the only one that, that can. So, yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic because he's someone who needs to change and and kind of knows that he needs to change, but also doesn't want to. So it's like, how do you reconcile that?
1: And I love the, the hesitance with which Darcy starts like confronts him where he he sees the uh, Daniel and Bridget talking and he's like I'm going to leave and then he goes down the stairs and it comes back he's like you know what let's step outside and which transitions <laughs> into this this really hilarious Fight where where uh it's two very like prim and proper British men <laughs> having a fist fight, which guess does get pretty like intense at certain points. But it's also like at other times they're like, oh, ap- ap- sorry, 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 like apologizing because they're going <laughs> in and out of windows. And what, what is your uh, what is your what is your thought on, on that uh, thoughts on that fight and the fact that her friends are like, oh, whose side are we on? It's like Mar- Mark, <laughs> and then it and then she said, well you know, Mark took, did steal Daniel's fiance. You're like, Oh, that's true. And they're like trying to figure out who to place bets on. What are your, what are your, your take on that?
0: Well, and it's to the tune of it's raining men, which I just mm-hmm. think is such a great song choice for that moment, because here you've got Bridget with two men literally fighting yep. over her. And she doesn't quite know what to make of either of them. Cause both of them in her mind have, have serious you know, issues. And, um, but it's such a funny scene. I remember watching an interview where I think it was on, I think they were all on Oprah and, um, Hugh Grant, they asked like, were there stunt doubles for the scene? And he said, no self-respecting stunt double would have fought like that. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just such a funny, it's such a funny moment, but really also it is an eye opener for Bridget as she's watching this unfold and realizing, even though, I mean, I'm sure that's very flattering to have two men in a fist fight over you.
1: That's also not really what she wants either. So then he's, when it's all said and done, uh, Darcy essentially wins the fight. So go Darcy. And uh, that's when she actually sides with Daniel. And he says that if I can't make it with you, we can work with you. I can't make it with work with anyone. And and then she has the best response, which is essentially again, it's like this is the, I think the third consecutive time in this kind of, in this type of situation with with Daniel, I, I believe, too, where she's just like, yeah, no, that's that's not a good enough offer for me. And I, I, that was so perfect because so many times in these movies, you, you know, they just go with the, the easy, the easy solution. Like, Oh, he proved his love for me. He fought this guy. He really does care. He's going to change. It's just like, people don't change that easily.
0: So many other movies that would have a similar dynamic, she would go off with him and then later realize that she shouldn't be with him. But mm-hmm. Bridget has already had enough history with Daniel and she already knew who he was before she ever got together with him in the very first place. Because she says in her opening that she shouldn't get involved with him. And so, she already knows. And so, when he says that, she's, she's just like, no, no, this... Basically, what I love is she's got two men fighting over her, and she chooses herself.
1: Again, perfectly suited to her the journey that she's on in, in this in this film. And then we have this scene where the, the parents, her parents, reconnect, and it's it's interesting because he says he pretends that he's has to think it over, and then he's like, "I'm, I'm <laughs> kidding with you." He's like, "I just don't work without you." Do you? There's, I feel like that line sort of implies a kind of codependency that almost doesn't sound so dissimilar from Daniel's perspective. Do you think that that, I mean, am I looking too deeply here or do you think that they're, they're, you know, they're even saying that even their, her parents' relationship isn't, obviously isn't perfect and that they have their own, uh, their own issues that they have to work out?
0: I'd never I'd never considered it in the context of what Daniel saying just because her dad is such a sweetheart. Mm-hmm. I think it's to me I look at it more as just I mean they've been together for almost 30 years. Right. He doesn't know life without her. I mean, he probably was barely an adult when they got together and and so I think that's what it is. Like he just he literally does not know how to live without her because when she was gone, he's just sitting there crying all the time <laughs> and lonely and can't function and it's just so sad but at the same time he really it's not just that he needs her he really does truly love her right and I, I just I think it's such a beautiful it's it's funny and I love that he doesn't just immediately let her off the hook he makes her stew just a little bit but but yeah there's they're so cute
1: it's an interesting it's a good counterpoint between because the the thing with Daniel happens I think almost the previous scene and it's the distinction mm-hmm. between I need you to to fix me because I'm a mess without you versus I I need you know I I I don't know I can't picture my life without you, which is basically what uh, Jim Broadbent's character is saying. So it's it, there. There is obviously a distinction there, but I I, I do think that it's a uh, a contrast that feels purposeful on uh, on Sharon McGuire's part.
0: Yeah, and for Bridget to be overhearing that conversation and to see this is what this is what everlasting love really looks like, and I just I I love that kind of realization for her.
1: And then just when we think it's starting to wind down, Darcy <laughs> announces that he not only is he uh, engaged apparently to Natasha who, and Beth Davids, who is randomly in this movie...
0: Well, I think we need to kind of clear something up yeah, here yeah, too, go first, because because there's been Bridget got wrong information about Mr. Darcy way back in the beginning. Oh, yeah, I
1: skipped that. No, exactly. Yeah. That's the same. That's basically the right the scene right before this, I think.
0: Well, that's yeah. Well, so in the beginning, her mom starts to tell her something about him and his his marriage, but kind of gets Distracted, cut off. And so then her dad <laughs> fills in the gaps of what he thinks is the truth because he's gay. He doesn't listen to gossip. He only hears half of it. And so he tells her the wrong thing, which is that, that Mark had cheated with his best friend's, girlfriend or whatever there, there had been some kind of cheating and then later Daniel fills in the gaps and says oh yeah it was it was my fiance and and so she is believed this is part of why she's been so resistant to Mark all the time is because she has believed that he was this also this terrible person that broke up a relationship while he was married And so when she finds out from her mom, no, that's not what happened. I know the actual gossip. He got cheated on by Daniel. That totally changes everything for her. She realizes, no, wait, Mark actually is a great guy. He's had this tragic thing happen to him. So that's why she wants to run off to to the party and and see him and then finds out that he's engaged.
1: It also puts in much better context his his reluctance to open himself up to romance with Bridget or, or kind of otherwise, because he seems kind of it's a defining characteristic of him that he's very skittish around Bridget, probably because he is attracted to her from the first time that they, you know, that they encounter each other in the beginning of the movie. Um, So then he's moving to New York and Bridget as is her way has uh, another, another instance of kind of word vomit uh, where she she screams out, (laughs) no losing one of our, (laughs) one of our top person, our top write something like that.
0: Yeah, I'm losing one of our top people.
1: It's, I'm sad. I, you know, she's like I'm. I'm sad for for England for as a as a country that we're losing to to a, to, to the states and all that. Um, so, you know, it ends up happening that uh, she's you know sitting down and again in her in another one of her depressive modes feeling like oh this guy sucks and this other guy is is you know a foregone conclusion that he's moving and he's in a relationship but that's not going to happen so they're they're planning on going to paris and um yeah they, her friends show up yeah go ahead
0: sorry i have seen it seriously so many times but um yeah so that's the thing she's all depressed and lonely she's sad about mark leaving and her friends show up and say, "Hey, let's let's get out of town. Let's let's just go away for the weekend. We're going to take you to to Paris." And so she's like, mm, yeah, sure, okay." So she packs a bag really quick, walks outside, and that's when Mark shows up. Mm-hmm. So you think like cuz you've had all these moments like this movie's got to be just about over, the story's almost over, but every time something happens and you know that she's like in love with Mark, but uh, then he's oh, he's getting married and and moving away, but you know, whatever. And then he shows back up and I love it.
1: Yeah. Sorry, it go on. They, they really, they really, and they really build up to to that kiss. They're like mm-hmm. leaning in and then they say something else and they're leaning in and then they're distracted because somebody's calling out. Are you, are you coming? <laughs> no. That kind of thing. Yeah. <coughs> and then of course they go upstairs and he finds the titular diary. Uh, And basically all her, you know, her diary seems like it's half of it is, oh, Daniel. And half of it is like, oh, I hate Mark Darcy. Underline, underline, underline. Uh (laughs) And and I love that, you know, not only is this kind does it do this sort of classic rom-com thing where people are chasing after each other down the streets and that kind of stuff. But that we get the misdirect where we think that he's like, oh, changed his mind again. And then we get the you want you probably want to you could you could do the the reveals but we get the scene where she's chasing him and and he's like oh she's like oh uh, he yeah, she's chasing him and she's like oh you know diaries are just full of crap he's like and then we get the reveal that what's he doing what he's doing.
0: So, yeah. So he saw her diary. And so then he takes off while she's out of the room. So she realizes that he has seen the diary. So she chases after him to be like, no, 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 it's, it's not what you think. And everyone, she says, everybody knows that diaries are full of crap. And then he says, I know, and he pulls out a brand new diary and he says, I just thought you'd like to start with something new. And it's like, ah, Mark Darcy really is the perfect man <laughs> I, I
1: li- because I li- he
0: understands.
1: <laughs> I, I literally wrote in my notes, aww, in all caps with exclamation points because that's such <laughs> a sweet moment. And it, it, it really, it's the, the period at the end of the sentence of explaining who this guy is and why, uh, and why she should be with him after, yeah, after exactly. everything the justice you are and all of this and then he sees this something that could easily he could be obviously you know def- offended by and kind of defensive of and instead realizes you know that they didn't really know each other she was basing her you know she was basing her opinions of him on false information blah 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 and it's like you know what let's just start from scratch a new chapter of your life literally new diary I i, I love that that's so great
0: It is, it is. And that's one of the things that makes Mark Darcy a really interesting person too, because he has every reason to be upset. And it's not just that he's like, oh, eh, whatever, it's fine. He is able to contextualize where she was coming from when she wrote those things. And I don't think it's overtly stated, but I don't think it needs to be. He recognizes his own behavior over the past year or so that they have been acquainted. And and he's able to, to say like, hey, you know what? This is a clean start for both of us. And, and that's what you get in that moment. And it's just, it's so sweet it's so sweet and it's interesting because i don't i think that the way it's it's filmed the way it plays out it manages to not feel cheesy
1: mm-hmm. which it very easily could oh, have oh for sure i mean it's, that's usually how a movie like this would end and i think he he does say at one point i think before, before he's saying how he likes her he does say something about owns up to his rude behavior and all, and all of that uh, early on because you know he keeps dropping uh, reference Earlier in in their in their encounters, that she was like a little girl running around in in his like pool, like in the neighborhood or whatever, (laughs) running naked in the pool, and that was like I guess how they knew each they knew each other as children, so they kind of were like in the same circle back then. I guess I think their parents are. Are friends or something, which is why they keep going mm-hmm. to the Darcy's party all the time.
0: Their parents were in the same circles. There's a little bit of an age difference. So she was much younger. So she didn't remember him right. really. He probably knowing the kind of family that he grew up in, he probably went to boarding school. So she wouldn't have known him in high school or anything like that. And then he went off to college and stuff. So they probably hadn't seen each other since they were children. And But yeah, he owns it. He, he says at one point, he, I love he even makes the point of like, Yeah, I said all these terrible things. Plus, I was wearing a really nasty, ugly sweater that my mother picked up for me. (laughs) So it's like, oh, there's this little self-deprecation there, too. Like, he recognizes that he looked ridiculous as well. Because that's the thing is she's always very aware of how ridiculous she looks it's kind of nice for her to hear that he recognized that about himself, too.
1: And there's a symmetry there because her mom made her put on that carpet dress <laughs> right before she, which she got there. So, And you, you kind of overhear him talking to his mom where she's trying to set him up with somebody, too. So there's, there's a little bit of matchmaking going on on both sides, I think, of this relationship. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Definitely, I think Karen and I would both recommend that you all check out this movie if you haven't seen it. Because I love the end of this movie so much. I think that's probably part of the reason that I didn't bother seeing the sequel. I was just like, oh, it looks like the same. Okay, she's going to have to choose between the two of them again, because that's the I think probably the way it was marketed. And certainly the poster is just, oh, she's back between these two guys. What's going to happen? I'm like, well, we resolved this. Now we're just treading water. But if you say it's underrated, maybe I should I should give it a chance.
0: Yeah, because the story develops a little bit differently because it starts off she and and Mark are fully in a relationship. And then being Bridget, she kind of screws it up a little bit. And they're not together when she runs back into Daniel. Right. So she does end up in a situation where she kind of has to make a choice. But it's it it feels like I could totally see this, you know, like this this happens to people so obviously it's a little bit exaggerated what happens to her it's definitely worth seeing where their story goes because it's not just this really romantic kiss while she's you know nake, half naked in the snow <laughs> at the end of Bridget Jones's diary there's more to their story because like we see with her parents there's no such thing as happily ever after you still have to do
1: some, some more work and put in the effort Exactly, I think that's I think that's essentially the mission statement of this movie. You have to you have to you have to do work on you know your love life and also yourself, and that's kind of where mm-hmm. Bridget starts in the beginning of the movie. So I think that's a nice way to to wrap up uh, our conversation. So Karen Peterson, thank you so much for being on the Crooked Table Podcast. Can you tell people where they can find you on social media?
0: Yeah, I am on Twitter and Instagram. That's the easiest way to find me. I'm at Karen M. Peterson. And you can find links to everywhere that I am and everything that I'm doing there.
1: Excellent. Well, thanks again for coming on. This was a lot of fun. And I I think we I haven't really talked about very many romantic comedies since relaunching the podcast in this kind of format. So I you know, it's great that we got the chance to talk about this film, which, like I said, I hadn't seen in forever. So
0: well, thank you for letting me defend one of my favorites. <laughs> it was really fun. Thanks I, so much.
1: I was under the impression it was in generally well re- generally well regarded. I didn't re- didn't even realize it I needed to be defended. I thought it was too. Hopefully, this podcast will help cement the, the respect for for Bridget Jones's Diary. That's right. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. See all okay